You're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. Welcome to today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for February 16th. I'm Camille Gretter from Drake University. Here is our first story. Our first story today is an article by Zach Wendling for the Nebraska Examiner, and it is titled ACLU Court Skips on Due Process Court Accused of Violating Immigrants' Rights. A new report from the ACLU of Nebraska accuses the U.S. Department of Justice Immigration Court in Omaha of routinely violating due process rights in immigrants' removal proceedings, including those living in southwest Iowa. The new report, unveiled Friday, is based on more than 500 pretrial hearings that researchers watched between April and August 2023. A team recorded the process and outcome of each hearing, including its length, whether immigrants were advised of their rights, the language they spoke, and whether they had an interpreter or attorney. Dylan Severino, legal legal fellow for the Nebraska ACLU and the report's lead author, said federal law guarantees that immigrants receive a full and fair removal hearing. What we saw is a far cry from that guarantee, he said in a statement. The U.S. Department of Justice's Executive Office for Immigration Review, which oversees such immigration courts, did not respond to a request for comment. About 40% of removal proceedings for the Omaha court include people living in Iowa, according to the ACLU of Iowa. It also said more than 2,600 new proceedings were filed against people living in Iowa in the current fiscal year. Comparable figures were not provided for Nebraska. Severino said pressures on courts, including growing caseloads and backlogs, should not affect constitutional rights. That's an unmovable object that simply cannot be fringed upon for the sake of expediency. Severino said at a Friday news conference. The Nebraska ACLU's report, produced in partnership with the University of Nebraska Lincoln Legal Decision-Making Lab, presents four takeaways from 534 observed hearings. The duration of each procedural hearing pretrial was 3.9 minutes. Judges read immigrants their rights in 18% of observed hearings, often in group settings. For 32 immigrants whose preferred language was a Central American indigenous language, such as MAM, Kinjabal and Kish, 81% did not have an interpreter, and an attorney did not represent an immigrant in 19% of observed hearings. The ACLU primarily observed non-detained cases before two judges, Alexandra Larson and Abby Meyer. Judge Matthew Morrissey primarily presides over cases of detained immigrants, the ACLU said. The ACLU of Nebraska unveiled a report Friday based on more than 100 pretrial hearings for immigrants between April and August 2023. The report says 387 hearings before Judge Larson were observed. They lasted an average of 3.8 minutes, and Larson didn't advise 79% of the immigrants of their rights. Of 147 hearings before Judge Meyer, she did not advise 92% of immigrants of their rights, and the hearings lasted an average of three minutes. ACLU's Recommendations Rose Godinez, Nebraska ACLU Legal Director, said the report indicates that the immigration system is not working for anyone. She hopes federal and state leaders pay attention. It is a problem that is shared by all of us, and the solution also depends on all of us, she said. Among the ACLU's recommendations are for the court to advise immigrants of their rights individually before each hearing and provide adequate interpretation services. It also recommends that local or state governments create a program for guaranteed representation. The ACLU also argues that the immigration courts should be federally restructured as an independent court system from the executive branch. More immigration judges who should come from diverse work experiences. Most of the system's judges are former immigrations and customs enforcement attorneys, including... In the meantime, the ACLU states this honest of deep little... Deep 
legalization falls on the DOJ. In a system that pits immigrants against the government, that bias can be determinative in life-or-death asylum cases, the ACLU report states. Severino said the Omaha court isn't reaching the bar set by constitutional rights. He argued that reforms would help the court become more efficient by preventing retrials and appeals. The bottom line is that there needs to be action to address the problems we found and help more people stay in Nebraska and Iowa, put down roots, and continue to strengthen our communities, Severino said. Typical pretrial proceedings. A typical pretrial removal hearing for immigrants, or master calendar hearing, is an important step that the attorneys with the ACLU of Nebraska and an immigration attorney said are some of the most important. The following actions must occur during each immigrant's pretrial hearing. The immigrant's case is called for hearing. The judge asks the immigrant to pronounce their name. The judge requests that the immigrant name their attorney if they have one. The judge advises the immigrant of their rights in the court. And ICE, an ICE attorney, describes allegations against the immigrant. The judge asks the immigrant to deny or admit to each allegation. The judge asks the immigrant to choose a country for deportation if the immigrant refuses the countries chosen for them. The judge asks if there are legal reasons the immigrant should not be deported. The judge sets deadlines for the submission of various forms, application, statements, and more. The judge schedules the next pretrial hearing or a final evidentiary hearing known as a trial or individual calendar hearing to decide the case. Next, we are going to dive into an article by Kayla McCullough for the Lee Gazette Des Moines Bureau. The title is House Proposes Alternative to Reynolds AEA Reform Bill. Iowa's area education agencies would continue to be the sole provider of special education support to school districts under a bill house Republican Wednesday, but the funding structure and provision of other services would change. The bill comes as an alternative bill Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds proposed to overhaul the agencies that provide special education and other services to schools in Iowa. House lawmakers last month declined to move Reynolds' bill forward after hearing from dozens of parents and school administrators to oppose to the bill. The Iowa Senate advanced an amended version of Reynolds' original proposal out of ongoing conversations about improving special education and reforming the AEA system have been productive and will continue to inform legislation, Reynolds said in a statement. From the start, my focus has been on ensuring students with disabilities receive high-quality services that help them achieve their potential. I appreciate that we will be able to continue the discussions on how we do that. Our kids deserve better. Iowa's nine AEAs, which are governmental agencies separate from the Department of Education, provide special education to school districts in their boundaries and assist with classroom equipment and media services, professional development, and talented and gifted instruction, among other services. What does the House bill do? The House bill, House Study Bill 713, removes a key piece of Reynolds' proposal that would allow school districts to contract with other parties, like a private company, to provide special education support services to students with disabilities. Under the House proposal, federal special education funding would still go directly to the AEAs. Beginning in the 2025-26 to school year, Funds for special education support coming from state sources would be kept by the districts rather than flowing to the AEAs. The districts would still have to spend that money with the AEAs for special education services, but they could receive the services through any AEA rather than the one in their specific region. The bill would establish a free-for-service model for media services and education services at the AEAs by the 2025-26 through 26 school year, similar to what Reynolds' bill calls for. 
Property tax funding for those services would go to the school districts rather than the AEAs, and the districts would contract with the AEAs or another party for the services. The AEAs will continue to be required to provide the special education services with our school districts, Iowa House Speaker Pat Grassley told reporters on Wednesday. That addresses the concerns we have as far as forward planning assurances, making sure that if there's changes with what school districts want to do, there's still school districts in rural Iowa that will have access to the services. House lawmakers will hold a subcommittee hearing on the bill on Thursday, and it is scheduled for consideration in the full education committee ahead of a key legislative deadline. Like Reynolds' bill, the House bill would bring oversight of the AEAs under the Department of Education, which would happen in the first year. The bill would move AEA boards to an advisory capacity and require department approval of AEA budgets. The salary for AEA administrators would be capped at the average salary of all superintendents in the district. The bill calls for establishing a division of special education in the Department of Education to handle federal and state compliance, which would be staffed with 58 new employees, 5 at each AEA and 13 in Des Moines. The House bill also calls for establishing a 10-member task force to study the AEAs, led by the legislative leaders of both parties. The group would assess and make recommendations related to the property owned by the AEAs, the services they provide, the accountability and oversight measures in place, the organizational structure of special education in Iowa, and a timeline for staffing modifications at the AEAs. Grassley said Republicans felt the need to begin making changes while the study happens in order to move faster on the issue and keep lawmakers engaged as the changes play out. The reason why we put this mechanism in place to move it forward is because the results of the legislatively-led study can help us address some of the unanswered questions that may exist that come from this, he said. House Minority Leader Jennifer Converse said Democrats are not supportive of the bill and do not think any major changes are needed to the AEAs. We continue to reject the premise that AEAs are needed wholesale change and need and to be overhauled, she said. So we're going to be looking very closely to see what the impact will be on kids and rural communities who need mental health services and special education services. What is in the Senate version? Senate Republicans made some changes to Reynolds' original proposal when they passed it out of committee on Wednesday, but they largely kept in place the provision that would allow school districts to use their special education dollars outside the AEA. Districts would begin receiving 90% of their state-provided special education funds starting in the 2025-26 school year, while AEAs would retain the other 10%. The district could use that money to provide special education services on their own or with another party, according to a summary read by Senator Lynn Evans, Republican Aurelia, during this amendment is the result of listening to and working with the AEAs and superintendents, while also understanding that this is not the final product, and we will fully expect more changes to be made in a floor amendment, Evans said. The bill would keep in place property tax streams funding media services and education services. Districts would receive 60% of the state funds dedicated to those services starting in the 2024-25 through school year. That money could be spent with the AEAs or another party using the same free-for-service model called for in in the House bill. Similar to Reynolds' proposal, the bill would call for establishing a division of special education in the Department of Education that would be in charge of compliance and oversight for the state. The department would need to work with the AEAs on a plan to transfer employees focused on oversight to the department. 
The Senate proposal would allow the Department of Education to set the AEA administrator's salaries and cap them at no more than 125% of the average superintendent salary in the region. The bill would also increase starting teacher salary to $46,251. Democrats roundly criticized the bill as not significantly different from the original proposal. They said they were worried it would lead to worsened outcomes for students with disabilities. Senator Molly Donahue, a Democrat from Cedar Rapids, said the bill would disproportionately hurt rural schools if larger schools decided to pull their money out of the AEAs. Our rural communities don't have the same ability to provide these services that our urban cities do, she said, which is why the AEAs were put into place in the first place. Lawmakers call for teacher salary bump. House lawmakers also proposed two other education bills on Wednesday, including one that would raise starting teacher salaries to $50,000 over two years. Reynolds' AEA bill called for raising the starting teacher pay to $50,000 and setting the minimum pay for teachers with 12 years of experience to $62,000. House Study Bill 714, which is separate from Republicans' AEA proposal, would set the starting teacher salary at $47,500 in the upcoming school year and $50,000 in the 2025-26 year. It would also increase pay for paraeducators and other support staff. House Republicans also introduced a bill to give a 3% increase to state funding for K-12 education for the coming year. Next, we are going to head into an article by Edith M. Letterer for the Associated Press, titled, UN Chief, Empty Bellies Fuel Unrest, Climate Chaos, Food Crises, Threatened Global Peace, Guterres says. The United Nations chief warned this week that climate chaos and food crises are increasing threats to global peace, telling a high-level UN meeting that climate disasters imperil food production and empty bellies fuel unrest. Secretary General Antonio Guterres urged the UN Security Council to address the impact of food shortages and rising temperatures on international peace and security, a view echoed by many countries, but not Russia. Climate and conflict are two leading drivers of our global food crisis, the Secretary General said. Where wars rage, hunger reigns, whether due to displacement of people, destruction of agriculture, damage to infrastructure, or deliberate policies of denial. Meanwhile, climate chaos is imperiling food production the world over, he said. Guterres said the world is teeming with examples of the devastating relationship between hunger and conflict. In war-torn Gaza, he said, no one has enough to eat, and the tiny strip accounts for 80% of the 700,000 hungriest people in the world. After more than a decade of war in Syria, he said, 13 million Syrians go to bed hungry every night. And in Myanmar, prospects of ending hunger have gone into reverse because of the conflict and instability, he said. Simon Steele, the United Nations climate chief, told the council that climate change is contributing to food insecurity and to conflict. He said one in 10 people on the planet today already suffers from chronic and if climate change accelerates, it will become worse. Rapid sustained action to cut greenhouse gas emissions and to increase resilience is needed now to help stop both from spiraling out of control, Steele said. 
The executive secretary of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change said the Security Council must acknowledge more can be done rather than hoping the problem will go away, which it won't. The UN's most powerful body should be requesting regular updates on climate security risks, he said. Beth, Beth Bechtel, deputy director of the UN Food and Agriculture Organization, said scientific evidence is clear. Climate change is compromising food security, and its impacts are a growing threat to international peace and security. She reiterated a long-time FAO warning. There's no food security without peace, and no peace without food security. Bechtel said 258 million people in 58 countries are facing high levels of food insecurity, and over two-thirds of them, 174 million people, are at high hunger levels because of climate change and conflict. While there may not be a direct casualty between the two, there is clear evidence that climate change increases risks and drivers of conflict and instability, such as disputes over land and water, Bechtel said. And conflict contributes to climate change vulnerability, especially for people who are forced to leave their homes and migrate. As an example of the complex relationship between climate change and conflict, she pointed to West and Central Africa herders who had peacefully crossed borders with the livestock in search of water and pasture for years. But climate change, environmental, and security pressures have led to increased tensions and competition between herders and farmers for scarce resources, including water and land, she said. Bechtel stressed that climate change and conflict affect not only livestock but crop production, fishing, and forestry, which are intimately and inextricably linked to climate change. She urged the UN and others to focus on agriculture as a key solution to the growing threats from climate change, conflict, and their impacts on food security. Moving on to our next article, this one is titled, Biden Proposes Broader Student Loan Debt Relief. Americans who are struggling to repay federal student loans because of financial hardship could get some of their loan debt canceled under President Joe Biden's latest proposal for widespread loan debt forgiveness. Several categories of borrowers would be eligible for relief under Biden's second try at widespread debt cancellation after the Supreme Court rejected his first plan last year. Those with older loans or large sums of interest are targeted for relief, for example. On Thursday, the Education Department expanded its proposal to include those who face financial hardship. The plan was expanded amid pressure from advocates and Democrats who said the proposal didn't do enough for struggling borrowers. The proposal is going through a rulemaking process. Conservatives vow to challenge any attempt at mass student loan debt cancellation. Our next article is titled, White House Confirms Russian Space Weapon. The White House publicly confirmed Thursday that Russia obtaining a troubling emerging anti-satellite weapon but said it cannot directly cause physical destruction on Earth. White House National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby said U.S. intelligence officials have information that Russia obtained the capability but such a weapon is not currently operational. U.S. officials are analyzing the information and consulted with allies and partners on the matter. The White House confirmed its intelligence after a vague warning from went, uh, vague warning Wednesday from U.S. Representative Mike Turner, Republican from Ohio, about a serious national security threat. Russia downplayed U.S. concern about the capability. 
Our next article is from the Associated Press, written by Michael R. Cisak, Jennifer Peltz, Jake Offenhart, and Eric Tucker. It is titled, Trial Will Start in March. The case is the first of former president's four criminal, criminal indictments. And this is about um, Donald Trump's hush money trials. So, Donald Trump's hush money trial will go ahead as scheduled with jury selection starting on March 25th, a New York judge ruled Thursday, turning aside demands for delay from the firm president's defense lawyers who argued it would interfere with his campaign to retake the White House. The decision means that the first of Trump's four criminal prosecutions to proceed to trial is a case centered on accusations that he sought to bury stories about extramarital affairs that arose during his 2016 presidential run. Other cases charge him with plotting to overturn the results of the 2020 election and illegally hoarding classified documents at his Florida estate. In leaving the trial date intact, Judge Juan Manuel Merchant pointed to the recent delay in the separate prosecution in Washington related to efforts to undo the election. That case, originally set for trial on March 4th, is effectively frozen pending the outcome of Trump's appeal on the legally untested question of whether a former president enjoys immunity from prosecution for actions taken while in office. Merchant said he decided to stick with the trial day after speaking last week with the judge in the Washington trial, Tanya Chutkin. The hush money trial is expected to last six weeks, Merchant said. Assuming the New York case remains on schedule, it will open just weeks after the Super Tuesday primaries, colliding on the political calendar with the time period in which Trump will be looking to sew up the Republican race and emerge as the presumptive nominee in this year's presidential contest. We strenuously object to what is happening in this courtroom, said defense lawyer Todd Blanche, adding that the fact that we are now going to spend, President Trump Trump is now going to spend the next two months working on this trial instead of out on the campaign trail running for president is something that should not happen in this country. Trump made a similar case after leaving the courtroom, telling reporters that instead of being in South Carolina and other states campaigning, I'm stuck here. In fact, Trump has repeatedly attended court proceedings where his presence was not required. Thursday marked Trump's first return visit to court in the New York case since that historic indictment made him the first ex-president charged with a crime. Since then, he has also been indicted in Florida, Georgia, and Washington, D.C. Heading into our next article, this one is also by the Associated Press, with the title, Feds Say FBI Informant Lied About the Bidens. Smirnoff charged with fabricating bribery tale about energy company. An FBI informant was charged this week with fabricating a bribery scheme involving President Joe Biden, his son Hunter, and a Ukrainian company, a claim that is central to the Republican impeachment inquiry in Congress. Alexander Smirnoff falsely reported in June 2020 that executives associated with the Ukrainian energy company Burisma paid Hunter and Joe Biden $5 million each in 2015 or 2016, prosecutors said Thursday. Smirnov, 43, was indicted Wednesday on charges of making a false statement and creating a false and fictitious record. He made a brief court appearance Thursday in Las Vegas but entered no plea. 
The informant's claims have been central to the Republican effort in Congress to investigate the president and his family and helped spark what is now a House impeachment inquiry into Biden. Prosecutors say Smirnov had contact with Burisma executives, but it was routine and it actually took place in 2017 after President Barack Obama and Biden, his vice president, left office and after Smirnov expressed bias against Biden than a presidential candidate. All right, our last news story for today is going to be also again from the Associated Press. This is titled, Willis Takes the Witness Stand to Defend Herself. Hearing could result in her being removed from Georgia election case. Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis took the witness stand Thursday to defend herself from efforts to remove her from the 2020 election interference case against Donald Trump angrily pushing back against what she described as lies about her romantic relationship with a special prosecutor. Willis agreed to testify in the extraordinary hearing that could result in her being disqualified from the case over her relationship with attorney Nathan Wade, which defense attorneys have described as a conflict of interest. Willis said she was eager to take the stand to set the record straight, saying it's highly offensive when someone lies on you. Robin Yeardy, a former co-worker of Willis, testified earlier Thursday that Willis's relationship with Wade began before he was hired as special prosecutor in November of 2021. Wade and Willis testified that they didn't start dating until 2022 and their relationship ended last summer. Trump and his co-defendants have argued that the relationship presents a conflict of interest that should force Willis off the case. Wade sought to downplay the matter, casting himself and Willis as private people. You're listening to the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for February 16th on IRIS, the Iowa radio reading information service for the blind and print handicapped in Des Moines. I'm Camille Greter from Drake University. IRIS volunteers love to hear from listeners. If you have any comments or questions about this or any IRIS program, please call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa at 515-243-6833. There are no obituaries today, so we are going to segue into sports. Starting off with an article from Eric Olson of the Associated Press, titled Clark Owns the Mark. Iowa Star breaks a scoring record with a 35-foot three-pointer. Caitlin Clark wasted no time becoming the NCAA women's career scoring leader Thursday night, taking less than three minutes to score the eight points she needed to break Kelsey Plump's record. The Iowa Star, who has brought unprecedented attention to women's basketball, surpassed the record with her signature shot, a 35-foot three-pointer that hit nothing but the bottom of the net and Clark didn't let up from there. She finished with a career-high 49 points, tied her career best with nine three-pointers, and had 13 assists in number 4 Iowa's 106-89 victory over Michigan. Hawkeyes coach Lisa Bluter took Clark out of the game with a minute and 46 seconds left, shortly after she made her final three, and she went to the bench to an ovation from the sellout crowd at Carver Hawkeye Arena. Clark's huge night put her at 3,569 points and within 80 of her next milestone, Lynette Woodard's major women's college scoring record of 3,649. Clark went into the game needing 8 points to pass Plum's total of 3,527. The record breaker was a 3 off the dribble and on the left wing near the Mediacom Court logo, 7 minutes 45 seconds left in the first quarter. 
It's cool. It's cool to be in the same realm as a lot of really, really good players, Clark said at halftime in a televised interview. I'm lucky to do it because I have really good teammates and really good coaches and a great support system that surrounds me. Plum established the previous record as a senior at Washington in 2017. Pearl Moore of Francis Marion holds the overall women's record with 4,061 points from 1975 through 79. Iowa has four regular season games left, plus the Big Ten tournament and the NCAA tournament. Barring injury, Clark, a senior who averages 32.1 points per game, is all but certain to pass Woodard. And she has the option to return for a fifth season of college basketball because of the COVID-19 pandemic. The crowd started chanting, one more year, one more year, while Clark, who was projected as the number one overall pick in the WNBA draft, was doing a post-game television interview. Among those offering congratulations on social media was LSU star Angel Reese, who shared the spotlight with Clark in last season's national championship game won by the Tigers. The Big Ten Network put out a congratulatory compilation video that included Tom Brady and Peyton and Eli Manning. Iowa won the tip, and Clark, guarded by Layla Felia, drove to the basket and banked in a shot from the right side. Clark hit a three from the left wing on Iowa's next possession. The Hawkeyes turned the ball over twice before Clark took a pass from Gavin Marshall in transition, stopped, and shot from deep. When the ball went through, the fans, many of them standing and holding up phones to capture the moment, let loose a huge roar. Luter called a timeout shortly thereafter, and Clark hugged teammates and coaches during a brief celebration. Just grateful. Thankful to be surrounded by people and be in a city that supports women's basketball so much, Clark said. Early bracket. South Carolina, Stanford, Ohio State, and Colorado would be the if it began now, as the selection committee revealed the teams in line for the top 16 seeds. Iowa is projected as a two-seed. Moving on from women's basketball, um, here is an article by the Associated Press by writer Doug Ferguson titled, Cantley Elites at Riviera with a 64. Woods shoots 72 and return that included a shank on the 18th. Thousands of fans watching Tiger Woods in his 2024 debut missed out on the best golf Thursday at the General, and the group ahead of Woods was Patrick Cantley looking as though he wants to be the next Southern California native to win at Riviera. Kelly opened with three birdies and four holes and never really slowed until a sycamore tree halted his great run. He still managed a 7-under 64, giving him a one-shot lead. Jason Day and Luke List played bogey-free for a 65, and they were joined by Cam Davis of Australia, who birdied three of his last five holes. Jordan Smith started as strongly as Cantley and had to settle for a 66. The smallest field at Riviera, 70 players as a signature event of entertainment. The most memorable was Woods hitting a shank from the middle of the 18th fairway and then the same club, A Iron, to squeeze a shot through a small opening in the eucalyptus trees and onto the green. He made bogey and shot 72. Justin Thomas had to play a shot off the concrete boundary wall of the driving range for it to ricochet back towards the rough. Sam Burns was headed toward a big number when he left a shot in the bunker behind the 10th green, only to hole out for a par so unlikely he flung his putter towards his bag. Not to be overlooked was Roy McIlroy, who was poised to be closer to the top until he went double bogey, triple bogey on the back nine, the latter on the par 3 16th when he left a one in the bunker and then three putted from eight feet. K 
Cantley, and for most of the day, Spythe, who played alongside him, made it look simple. Both went out in 30 to set the pace. Our group had good momentum, Cantley said. Jordan and I were a bunch under on the front nine and a day where I putted really, really well. Made every putt I should have and a couple longer ones. It was a good start. Woods showed the kind of competitive rust he expected having not played an official PGA Tour event since the Masters, after which he had surgery to fuse his right ankle. That shank was a shocker, and perhaps more concerning was Woods saying his back was acting up in the final hour, leading to the shank. My back was spasming the last couple holes and it was locking up, Woods said. I came down and it didn't move. McIlroy took three shots from 25 feet just off the back of the 18th green for a bogey and a 74, leaving him in jeopardy of a missed cut. Heading back to basketball, we have an article by the Associated Press um, about the Purdue-Minnesota game titled Down 10, Number 2 Purdue Rallies Past Minnesota. Zach Eddy overcame a slow start with 24 points and 15 rebounds as number two, Purdue, rallied from the 10-point deficit to defeat Minnesota 84-76 on Thursday night. The Boilermakers, who trailed by 10 after the opening possession of the second half, turned to their 7'4 senior All-American center to help lead the comeback. The reigning, the reigning National Player of the Year shook off three of nine shooting in the first half by moving closer to the basket with three dunks, the last slam pushing Purdue ahead 57-55 to with 12 minutes 27 seconds remaining. Point guard Braden Smith had 16 points, 9 assists, and 8 rebounds for Purdue, which improved 43-3 to at home in the last three years, including 7-0 in Big Ten play this season. Mason Gillis hit four three-pointers and finished with 14 points. The Gophers sunk Purdue early by going 9 of 16 on three-pointers in the first half. Four different shooters hit threes during a 19-3 wolf run. But then Minnesota went just 3 of 9 from long range in the second half. Despite a roster with only three seniors, third-year Minnesota coach Ben Johnson's resurgent squad has improved dramatically from 9-22 last season. The Gophers lack a signature road win in conference play, dropping to 2-5 in Big Ten away games. Number 24, Florida Atlantic University 80, Temple 68. John L. Davis scored 70 points. Elijah Martin and Brayton Weatherspoon each had 16 as host Florida Atlantic won the Battle of the Owls. FAU pulled away with an early 15-2 run. Temple has lost 10 straight. Notes. The Miami Invitation the Maui Invitational is returning to the Lahaina Civic Center for the first time since wildfires devastated the area and killed 101 people. The tournament will be played November 25th through 27th after being shifted to Honolulu earlier this season. With Wednesday night's blowout win over DePaul, top-ranked UConn moved a step closer to its first Big East regular season championship since the 2005-2006 season. The Huskies, who lead number four Marquette by two and a half games with six remaining, host the Golden Eagles on Saturday. Next, we're going to head over to the Ask Amy section with Amy Dickinson. We're going to... The headline for this one is Newly Married Couple Clashing Over Windfall. Dear Amy, my wife Nell and I are newlyweds. After the wedding, my wife's grandfather sent her a check for $10,000. I jokingly asked her to hand over my $5,000 share as her new partner. 
She responded with an angry rebuke, which inspired me to start thinking seriously. Why aren't I entitled to share in this wedding gift? Dear D, this answer would depend on your wife's grandfather's statement of intent when he sent this money. Was this a wedding gift or a gift sent to your wife after your wedding? If the money came along with a note saying, Mel, I hope you will use this gift toward retiring your college debt so you can get a running start to your marriage, then the grandfather is using the occasion as a way to give his granddaughter a special gift. If the grandfather did not state any specific intentions and addressed the card slash envelope to both of you as a wedding gift, then it is for both of you. In my opinion, you blew it when you jokingly asked your wife to hand over your half, although the real gift here is that this episode should force you to discuss your finances, what's hers, yours, and ours. Being married should inspire both of you to change your orientation from me to we. You deposit your paychecks into a joint account and pay your expenses from this account? Will you pay your expenses proportional to your incomes or split them equally? Moving forward, if one of you wins the lottery or receives money from a family member, will you deposit it into your joint account to be shared equally? If you two divorce, these matters would be decided by the community property laws in your state. During your marriage, you get to make these choices as a couple, and I hope you will. A postnuptial agreement would codify some of these decisions, and it is and is essentially a roadmap for dividing assets if you're divorced. Even if you get a postnup, don't plan for your divorce. Plan for your marriage. That's the end of that one. Dear Amy, my ex-wife and I divorced five years ago. I have primary custody of my three daughters, ages 6 to 12. Their mom sees them every other weekend. Three years ago, I met the wonderful Elise. Elise and I got married last year, and she moved into our home. She didn't bring children into the marriage and is thrilled to be a part of our family. All of the girls seem to be doing well, aside from occasional emotional storms based on their age and stage. The youngest daughter is most attached to her new stepmother, but the others are getting there. My issue is that Elise wants wants the kids to call her mom. She's not asked them to do this, but she's made it clear to me that she's disappointed that they don't. I'm not sure what to tell her. From Confused Father. Dear Confused, you should tell your wife exactly what your children would tell her. They already have someone in their life they call mom. The stepmother's journey is extremely challenging, possibly more challenging for an eager and inexperienced new parent. Your wife is one of your kids' parents, but she's not their mom, and as time goes on, she will carve out her own special relationship with these daughters. Next, we're going to move on to the Today on History segment by the Associated Press. So today's highlight is on February 16th, 1959, Fidel Castro became of Cuba a month and a half after the overthrow of Fulgencio Batista. On this date, in 1862, the Civil War Battle of Fort Donelson in Tennessee ended as some 12,000 Confederate soldiers surrendered. Union General Ulysses S. Grant's victory earned him the moniker Unconditional Surrender Grant. In 1918, Lithuania proclaimed its independence from the Russian Empire. Lithuania, which was occupied by the Soviet Union, then Nazi Germany, then the Soviet Union again during World War II, renewed its independence in 1990. In 1923, the burial chamber of King Tutankhamun's recently unearthed tomb was unsealed in Egypt by English archaeologist Howard Carter. 
1945, American troops landed on the island of Corregidor in the Philippines during World War II. In 1960, the nuclear-powered radar picket submarine USS Triton departed New London, Connecticut on the first submerged circumnavigation by a vessel. In 1961, the United States launched the Explorer 9 satellite. In 1996, 11 people were killed in a fiery collision between an Amtrak passenger train and a Maryland commuter train in Silver Spring, Maryland. In 1998, a China Airlines Airbus A300 trying to land in fog near Taipei, Taiwan, crashed, killing all 196 people on board, plus seven on the ground. In 2009, in Stamford, Connecticut, a 200-pound chimpanzee named Travis went berserk, severely mauling its owner's friend, Jayla Nash. Travis was shot dead by police. In 2011, bookstore chain Borders filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection and said it would close nearly a third of its stores. Borders closed all of its remaining stores in September 2011. In 2012, New York Times correspondent and former Associated Press reporter Anthony Shadid, a two-time Pulitzer Prize winner, died of an apparent asthma attack in Syria while reporting on the uprising against its president. He was 43. In 2017, in the first full-length news conference of his presidency, Donald Trump denounced what he called the criminal leaks that took down his top national security advisor, Michael Flynn. All right, let's move on to the Daily Astrology by Nancy Black. So today is birthday, 216-24. Good fortune blesses your house this year. Steady, disciplined action wins lucrative rewards. Solve family challenges before exciting springtime creative and collaborative possibilities arise in conversation. Shift summer professional projects around changes before setting off on bold autumn adventures. Domestic joys feed your spirit. To get the advantage, check the day's rating. 10 is the easiest day, 0 the most challenging. Aries, March 24th through April 19th. Today is an eight. Communication and connection comes naturally. You're especially popular this month with Venus and Aquarius. Get social. Play on powerful teams for causes you love. Taurus, April 20th through May 20th. Today is a nine. Discover professional advances. Your status and influence rise over the next month with Venus and Aquarius. Take charge. Put love into your work. Gemini, May 21st through June 20th. Today is an eight. Set study goals. Travel looks good this coming month. It's easier to venture forth with Venus and Aquarius. Explore and discover uncharted terrain. Cancer, June 21st, June 21st through July 22nd. Today is a seven. Profit through collaboration with Venus and Aquarius. The next month's favor favors earning and saving money. Increase shared assets with coordination. Strategize and build together. Leo, July 23rd through August 22nd. Today is an eight. Partnerships flower with Venus and Aquarius for the next month. Compromises come naturally. Share and discover beauty, passions, and love. Rely on each other. Virgo, August 23rd through September 22nd. Today is an eight. Growing stronger. Energize healthy practices. Get your heart pumping this month. Take your work, health, and vitality up a notch. Libra, September 23rd through August 22nd. Today is a nine. Practice talents, skills, and hobbies. You're especially lucky in love over the next month with Venus and Aquarius. Artistic efforts sparkle. Your creative muses harmonize. 
Scorpio, August 23rd through November 21st. Today is an eight. Feather your love nest. Make household improvements. Enjoy domestic arts and pleasures with Venus and Aquarius for a month. Save her home and family. Sagittarius, November 22nd through December 21st. Today is a nine. Connect and share. You love learning over the next month with Venus and Aquarius. You're especially clever and creative. Write, record, and express. Capricorn, December 22nd through January 19th. Today is a nine. Gather abundance with Venus and Aquarius. The next month can be especially profitable. Your work and demand rises naturally. Aquarius, January 20th through February. Today is an eight. You're especially beloved with Venus in your sign. Your charm and charisma shine this month. Try a new style. Step on stage. Pisces, February 19th through March 20th. Today is at 7. Savor our restful, contemplative month. Venus and Aquarius. Slow the pace and practice relaxing rituals. Process recent transitions. Make plans to follow your heart. This is from the Tribune Content Agency. All right. We're going to move on to this uh, Dear Kathy section by Kathy M. Rosenthal. Um, the headline for this article is Help Timid Pub Gain Confidence. So it starts off, Dear Kathy, my adult granddaughter has an eight-month-old toy Australian Shepherd. She got the dog when he was three months old. The dog is friendly toward family members but will not allow strangers to go near him. He will back away if I put my hand out to pet him and then run away. He won't go anywhere near me, and it's as if he is frightened of all strangers. He's been to a vet and has all his shots. If Is this something he'll grow out of as he gets older? How can we make him a friendly puppy? Sherry from New York. Dear Sherry, there are several things your granddaughter do, can do to help her fearful puppy gain confidence. While I will suggest a few things here, my first recommendation is for your granddaughter to enroll her puppy in a dog training class or sign up for private lessons with a trainer or animal behaviorist. These professionals can identify the puppy's triggers and help her create a plan to build up this puppy's confidence through training. Until then, here are some things she can do. Create a home environment where the puppy feels relaxed and safe. This may include putting a pheromone collar on him, giving him some over-the-counter relaxing chews, or putting an anxiety wrap or thunder shirt on him. Next, ask everyone outside his friendly circle not to approach or try to pet him. They can talk to and encourage the puppy, but the puppy or dog should always be the one to initiate physical contact with them. This advice goes for all dogs. I never approach dogs to pet them. I always wait for them to come to me. Start training the puppy. Training builds a dog's confidence and helps him learn the boundaries of his world. Training should include responding to his name, sitting, coming when called, downing, staying and healing on a leash. Begin training in the house. As his confidence and skills grow, expand training outside the home or a nearby park. Once he learns basic training, she can begin to focus on her dog's triggers, which in this case is anyone approaching him. She will need to determine the safe distance for where a person can stand without him exhibiting fear. If he seems fine when someone is 10 feet away, but reacts when someone is 9 feet away, then 10 feet is where you start this training. Have the person stand 10 feet away and ask him to toss treats towards your dog. The person can inch closer to him, but if he responds fearfully at any point, then the person needs to back up to 10 feet again. 
This training may require many practice sessions to see progress, so tell your granddaughter to be patient and consistent with the training. Outside of the training, she should reward her puppy with a treat whenever he appears relaxed or responds positively to any engagement. As the training progresses, she can slowly expose him to new environments too, but she must never force him into any situation where he shows discomfort. Always encourage, praise, and build up the dog's confidence over time so he learns to trust the people around him. Dear Kathy, in your column regarding the pet corrector product, you said it's a small can of compressed air that provides a shh sound to interrupt unwanted behavior. Direct this toward Rebecca whenever she goes after Marcy. This product should not be aimed or directed toward the pet when using it. The vendor recommends using it by aiming the spray away from the pet. The steps for use are WAG, witness, act, give. Pete, Cedar Falls, Iowa. Dear Pete, thanks for the opportunity to clarify product usage. We don't want Marcy to think that correction is for her when it's for Rebecca, so the product should be used where Rebecca can hear it and see it more clearly than Marcy, but never directly in Rebecca's face. Hope that helps. Hope that helps. Kathy M. Rosenthal is an author and pet expert who has more than 25 years in the animal welfare field. Send your pet questions, stories, and tips to Kathy at petpundit.com. Please include your name, city, and state. You can follow her at Kathy M. Rosenthal. All right, we're going to go over to another advice column uh, with Jan Blackstone. Um, This one is titled, Respect Child's Time with the Other Parent. X etiquette. Question is, my son's father and I share our 13-year-old's time equally, but his dad always seems to want more time. Why he thinks he deserves more than half, I don't know, but that's the impression he gives. My son will be comfortably watching TV when his father will call and tell him something to lure him away from my home. He just bought a puppy, just bought a ping pong table, he bought him that new phone he wanted, and all will be available when he gets home. So, my son tells me he wants to go to dad's and his dad comes to pick him up. I can't say, no, you can't go to your dad's. What's good ex-etiquette? Answer. Forbidding your child to go to his other parent's home would not be good co-parenting. But there's more going on here than purchasing some cool stuff for your child and wanting to tell him about it. Enticing the child with purchases while he is at the other home undermines the child's desire to spend time with his other parent. This is done with intent, and if allowed to fester, this alienating behavior will be extremely damaging to your child. It is centered on undermining the child's desire to spend time with his other parent, and that is not in the child's best interest. What is in the child's best interest is to have a loving, caring relationship with both parents, and it is each parent's responsibility to support the child in having that relationship. If your child prefers to be at at one home than another, that's a red flag to check your co-parenting. Sometimes that is inevitable. I've had kids tell me they prefer one home over the other because they like their bed better at one home. But if the reason for their preference is something that the parents are doing, like luring them away with material possessions, shame on you. That's really poor ex-etiquette and downright poor parenting as well. Another red flag in this scenario is when a parent refers to their house as home and direct comparison to the other parent's residence. This implies the child isn't really home unless he's with, in this case, his father. Dad is the real parent. The other parent is sort of a stand-in parent until the child returns home. 
All this is done subliminally by merely calling one house home and the other house your mother's house or your father's house. The best course of action for both parents at this point is to agree that purchases are not weapons to lure the child from one home to the other. If something is purchased while the child is at the other parent's home, they must wait to notify it and give it to the child when the child returns. Most importantly, these parents must learn to respect each other in the child's time with the other parent. That's good ex-etiquette. Alright, we're going to finish today with an article from Bang Showbiz titled Model Kaya Gerber Says She Resented Fame. Kaya Gerber, Gerber, 22, felt angry about her celebrity status and resented fame. The model actress, daughter of supermodel Cindy Crawford and businessman Randy Gerber, has said she wasn't happy with her life in the spotlight, so she channeled her frustration into creating a book club on Instagram featuring interviews with authors. She credits the project with giving her focus. She told the Wall Street Journal, I think that a big part of big part for me of starting a book club is I did reach a point where I really resented fame and felt angry. Why do people get to take something from me when I leave the house? And then all of a sudden I was like, this gives me something. This can be a gift. Gerber added that having famous parents didn't affect her too much when she was growing up because they refused to let their profiles stop them doing normal activities with the kids. She explained that they never ever let it dictate what they did or didn't do. It never controlled our life. As a kid, if I wanted to go pick out a Christmas tree, we're going to pick out a Christmas tree. And maybe there would be paparazzi pictures, but my parents would never be like, oh no, I don't want to do that. And that brings us to the end of today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for February 16th. The Nonpareil can be heard each weekday at 5 p.m. I'm Camille Grutter from Drake University in Des Moines. Thank you for sharing your time with Iris, the Iowa Rating Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind.
From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. What exactly is fossil water, and why have we consumed so much of it? No, it's not a new brand of bottled water imported from the days of dinosaurs. Fossil water came from melting ice sheets, ancient lake systems, and a generally wetter climate tens to hundreds of thousands of years ago. It percolated into porous rocks, which were then buried under deep layers of sediment, where it was sealed off from the surface, and there it stayed, until farmers discovered it. And in the second half of the 20th century, they started drilling wells into fossil aquifers and pumping like mad, turning sunny, dry places into acres and acres of green farmland. Crop supplies boomed. Food became cheaper and more plentiful, grown in formerly parched places like California and Kansas, and shipped around the world for people like you and me to eat, ingesting fossil water with it. The trouble is, fossil water is a finite resource, and new studies suggest that many fossil aquifers may become depleted this century, so that we won't be able to rely on them any longer. This could mean that the crops that depend on them could become less plentiful and more expensive again. All the while, population will likely increase, the climate will likely warm, our demand for water will continue to climb, which means we'll have to adapt to the lack of fossil water just as we adapted to its discovery, this time with more efficient crops and farming methods and more efficient use. For Earth Date, I'm Scott Tinker. Earth Date is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more EarthDate stories at earthdate.org.